0: Welcome, this is Coppercasts, a brand new show dedicated to exploring the wonderful if somewhat technical world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. Our guest today is David Schreier. David has spent a career learning and understanding how technology can shape a more positive world. He's an associate fellow at the University of Oxford's Said Business School and a lecturer and futurist at MIT. He's consulted a who's who of Fortune 500 companies, including GE, NBC, Walt Disney, AOL Verizon, among many, many others. He's advised governments, including the European Commission on the commercialization of innovation. And he's informally engaged with the OECD, the Bank of England, the FCA, the SEC, Treasury, FDIC. And if that weren't enough, he's also the co-author of several books, including most recently Basic Blockchain, which was released earlier this year. And you can pre-order his next book, which comes out in February. It's called Augmenting Your Career, How to Win at Work in the Age of AI. David, we're grateful to have you with us here this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here.
0: So you've clearly had a a very accomplished career, Um, but I'm I'm curious whether there was an an aha moment uh, with regards to blockchain technology that made you switch focus to that um, and then maybe even again specifically to crypto assets.
1: Yeah, so, so it's actually kind of a funny story. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, the queen of crypto, Meltem Demers, so often appears on CNBC and elsewhere. Uh, so, so Meltem was an MIT student getting her MBA at Sloan, and I was helping run a research group and doing a few other things. And, uh, uh, and so she came into the offices where uh, we were housed, and she said, you know, I just started the MIT FinTech. This was in like 2015. I just started the MIT fintech club. Why don't we have a fintech venture startup class? And my colleague, uh, Yost Bonson and I looked at each other and we said, cause we're both really busy. Yost was teaching six classes that fall. I was doing a lot of other work and, uh, uh, and she literally refused to leave our office until we agreed to teach the class. So we kind of looked at each other sheepish, and said, fine, if we do it together, maybe we can find a way to carve out the, the time to, to teach the class. And so uh, so we put it together. Uh, it ended up being tremendously successful. And, and part of why I agreed to teach it is I'd heard about this blockchain thing, right? Because uh, a lot of the early work in Bitcoin um, had started to permeate the MIT campus. And, and and there were things like the student club gave everybody one Bitcoin, which back then was like worth a dollar at the time that they did it. Did you get one? Uh, I didn't want to take it because I, I felt like this was a student benefit and I didn't want to. Accept that. Do you regret that? (laughs) Not really. I mean, it's you know you have to invest in what you know. Sure. Right. And so Meltem tried to convince me to invest in Bitcoin at four hundred. I said no, I don't speculate. And a year later, she came back to me when it was at eight hundred, and she said, "You really should get into this." I said, "I invest in my discipline. I understand early stage venture capital and private equity. I understand mutual funds." I do not understand speculation and crypto as a day trader. So it's not going to be something that I can put money into. And uh, um, although you could argue that I'd be the multimillionaire at this point, if I had listened to her, uh, it, it's not my asset class. Uh, and so you have to stick to your discipline. That's the best way to make money.
0: So what was the structure of that course that, that you guys put together? What, what were you focusing on in, in 2015?
1: Yeah. So, so, uh, um, so, so blockchain was, was like a major theme in the course. It was not the only theme. But it was around financial technology and, and how it was transforming financial services globally and how it was creating opportunity for people and how it could solve problems. So, you know, MIT has this theory or, or, or pedagogical principle called mens et Manus, which is Latin for mind and hand. And, and that really ran through kind of how we designed the class. So everyone would be put into teams and you'd work on a project over the course of the semester. And so there'd be lecturers and guest speakers to give you perspectives and points of view. And so we had people like Jeremy Allaire come in talking about this weird new thing called blockchain. And then we'd have uh, um, the students meet with the instructors in, in a pedagogy of, you know, it's sort of inspired by the Oxbridge tutorial system. So you'd meet with the professors and get personalized feedback on your project and get problems to solve and questions to answer. And so, uh, it was really dynamic class. It got, you know, 6.9 out of seven on the teaching scale, you know, the internal ratings Uh, and, and students loved it. And they went off and they started all sorts of amazing businesses, um, not just in blockchain, but certainly
0: there were a lot of people doing blockchain. So I know one of the things that you've been focusing on certainly for quite a while before that was, was artificial intelligence. Um, Was there. And since then too. Yeah, of course. Is there, was there an immediate, um, was it immediately apparent to you that there was a role for AI in this developing blockchain space? Is that something that, you know, crossed your mind? Was it something, were you having discussions with the students about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, candidly, not in 2015, but, but certainly by about 2017 or 2018, this theme of convergence began to emerge. That, that blockchain by itself was not as interesting as if you take big data analytics and AI and quantum and you put it together. And actually, truth, truth to tell, we started thinking about that seriously in 2016 when we put out uh, trust data with uh, Sandy Pentland and Thomas Harjono. And, and then we updated that in 2018, uh, 2019, sorry, with uh, trusted data, which was sort of the reboot. There's like 50% new material, but sp- looking at this question of convergence of what do you get if you take these different technologies and you put them together and and what does that unlock?
0: And was there enough like real world applications or projects that you were able to, to look at and evaluate and say, this isn't theoretical. You can take AI where it's at now and apply it in the real world and see tangible results. Or was it still just you know, we think this is where it's headed and this is what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. Well, so let me take you back in history a little bit because people have been predicting the inevitable dominance of AI since the 1950s and they've been consistently wrong until they weren't. With Skynet, you mean? Well before Skynet, but yes, I often <laughs> refer to that as, you know, it's, it's starting to become a metaphor I can't use anymore because like, <laughs> so the, you know, the a Gen Z doesn't know what Skynet right. is. And we'll, so, we'll post
0: a link to that as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, thank you. But 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 at least for my generation, that's meaningful, and I talk about it in my new book about AI uh, uh, called "Augmenting Your Career," where where we we look at this question: if we're going to have a future of Skynet, where the the evil AI takes over the world and tries to kill humanity or are we going to have a more positive future that's more like Star Trek where the AI are, are helpful things that, that benign, let us benign sort of. and, yeah. and supportive and, and, and integrated with society. And so, but going back in time, you know, even in, so I began playing around with AI in like the early 1990s. I mean, I first programmed a neural network in 1991 and, and it was just, a at that point, a theoretical computer science exercise, honestly. They, like, I, I built an expert system in, in the early 90s that was, you know, kind of vaguely functional. It was essentially, you get someone really smart who knows a lot of things, and you create a whole bunch of rules. If, then. So, if we see X, then do Y. And so, you have this massive lookup table of rules that, that you know, when you interact with it, it can navigate well-defined, known problems with structured data sets. And so that are a very limited field of things that you can do with an expert system. And so um, in fact, an expert system was the first thing to pass the Turing test, which meant that uh, people couldn't tell if they were interacting with a computer or a person. Uh, but it, but it was really done as a, almost as a gag. I mean, there's all this very, very primitive stuff. So if you think about chat bots today, especially like think about, you know, a lot of chat bots are showing up on online dating websites, It was about that primitive this expert system in the 1960s that passed the Turing test, and so I guess it says people are easily fooled. But but the actual practical applicability of AI was very very limited for a long throughout the 90s. It was a loser investment sector, and then suddenly about a little over 10 years ago we started to get computing power and network communications and data to a place where the AI could really start to get useful. So if you think of Siri or you think of Alexa or you think of these other uh, speech-based AI systems that that you you have conversational AI, you can uh, Alexa play Despacito and suddenly music starts playing, right? That stuff was only within the last 10 years. And so then the question becomes... You know where is it heading next, and what does it mean? Because with that AI practicability, what, what's called in the in the um, uh, 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 you know in the in the business world when you're looking at what's happening in financial services, you know it's the rise of robotics, right? And so people are talking about uh, robotic systems replacing human systems. You're seeing mass job layoffs. I mean, until COVID put a, a moratorium on layoffs, uh, you had major banks, top four banks in the UK laying off tens of thousands of people because you were able to replace people with robotic process automation, RPA. And so, so now what comes next? And this is where it gets really interesting.
0: So I I think I've seen you speak on this, on this topic and it's probably where we're headed at the moment. So AI is being able to predict financial behaviors oh. and that's increasingly becoming more understood, more, more, I don't know, what's the word, programmable or predictable? Well, more pervasive. pervasive. I mean, it's starting to be used, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So, so again, that, that stuff was postulated 15, 20 years ago. So here's an interesting way to predict the future. Uh, and this is what a colleague of, of ours uh, 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 said to me a uh, number of years ago. He said, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And so if you look in the halls of of the academy and you look at what the top researchers at places like MIT and Oxford and Cambridge and UCL and Imperial and some of the other top institutions, look at what they're working on now. That's stuff you're going to see between five and 20 years from now in commercial applicability. And so people were playing around with this idea about 15 years ago of using AI and computers to predict human financial behaviors, started publishing on it. Maybe ten years ago, we started seeing some traction with those systems getting more sophisticated. About six to eight years ago, and people began doing commercial startups. And so today, there are a lot of AI systems that are doing things like automated lending. So um, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but but I think it was either Alibaba or Tencent had this three two one model or three two zero model where it was like they were going to evaluate your, it would take you three seconds to fill out the application. They would evaluate it in two seconds and you get an answer in one second or something like that. I mean, it was, but, but it's the, the time cycles when you have the right data and the right AI are so compressed that decisioning can exceed the span of human thought, which comes with dangers because it means the AI can spiral way past controls. And so there's some interesting tension between the AI potential and, and the AI risk.
0: And in, in an example like that where you're using the AI, you know it's not just exploring the data. It, what is it predicting? Is it, is it predicting a person's ability to repay a loan? So for example, um, so existing credit models are
1: built on antiquated data models and antiquated math. The, the credit system, the FICO, Experian Equifax credit scoring system emerged out of the 1960s around payment transaction predictability. It's known as linear regression. We look at what you did before and then we extrapolate it forward and we say, you're probably going to do it again. Now, one of the first things that you give in financial advice is past performance is no guarantee of future results. And turns out that's also true for human behavior. And so credit models are actually not super awesome at predicting what people are going to do. But wouldn't it be great if we had a way of looking at the data around you with your permission because you want a better rate on a loan and, and we could actually predict what's going to happen 60 days in the future from what you're doing now. And so those behavioral credit models have far superior, like 50% better predictability than conventional FICO-based models.
0: And, I mean, how far away are these from being widely adopted? When is this going to – does this already impact me if I apply for Which a mortgage? Which country are you in? Well, today right? let's so, go with the U.K. because that's where we are right now.
1: So the U.K., a lot of the G7 countries have – very strong uh, lobbies. Uh, corporate interests are able to advocate very strongly for maintaining the status quo and, and a lot of just incumbent behavior that, that's you know inertia, corporate inertia. And so here in the UK, you're still probably using something that at least cross-checks with FICO. It might have some other layer on top of it that's more progressive and sophisticated, but, but FICO is in there somewhere because it's explainable. So we
0: understand how it works. Is this where, you know, challenger banks are coming in and is this something, you know, can they afford this technology? I mean, one of the biggest barriers to technological adoption is always the cost of, you know, the AI, the data sets, whatever. So is this, you know, am I going to see a challenger bank in Europe, in the UK this year or next year, five years from now that completely adopts this technology and changes the way people apply for credit?
1: Well, I mean, there, people are trying now. But but the other thing that, that's exciting was, and this is part of this, what's happened over the last 10 years, is that around 2015 or so, Google open-sourced their AI engine. Um, it was called TensorFlow. And suddenly, machine learning systems, the, the, the math around machine learning became dramatically democratized. Now you didn't need someone who was one of 200 people in the world who understood this very sophisticated. Now, you know, tens of thousands of computer programmers who had moderate skill around machine learning were able to use machine learning systems and all sorts of interesting things started happening. And it's gonna accelerate again with technologies like GPT-3, which is coming out of uh, OpenAI funded by Elon Musk, where again, you're getting another step function increase in the power of AI that's available very cheaply to lots of people. Coupled with that is the decrease in cost of compute power from AWS and Google and Microsoft where you can rent bandwidth and compute cycles very inexpensively. And so when you take that, you take the math has gotten democratized and you take the computing power is getting really cheap and you put those together. Now, suddenly, all sorts of things are starting to happen. In the words of one guy that I interviewed for uh, uh, for my book, um, he was saying how, you know, uh, basically... Things are going to get really weird in about three or four years. Weird good? Weird weird. Okay. <laughs> could be good. Could be bad. It's going to be all sorts of bizarre things happening when this highly democratized, heavily sophisticated AI would, would suddenly have have. You know, pervasiveness. So I used to say that, well, you know, at least writing is a fallback profession because, you know, you can't replace that with an AI. And then GPT 2 came out, and there's an engine, if you go online, you can find this GPT 2 engine. It's it's okay. It kind of reads like I mean we see this in financial sector where earnings calls are now all the earnings releases are all done by AI. No human writer is doing that anymore. This was like ten or fifteen years ago they started programming this in, and and it reads like it was written by a machine. But you kind of understand it enough that you know the zero cost of producing it is is worth the benefit of being able to see this. But now GPT two is almost like that. It's a little bit better. GPT three is indistinguishable from a human writer.
0: That's so, scary because there's been examples where they've tried, I can't remember if it was Microsoft or someone else, tried to have like a Twitter bot that was AI written. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they analyzed all the tweets Yeah, the and world within and, 12 hours it taught itself to be racist. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's not great. No, that's but not GPT great. But GPT-3 is the next step level beyond that, isn't it? Well, it,
1: it's, it's, it's well beyond that in, in very, so here's an example. Think about cheap compute power, deep fakes, and a convincing script. You could, within three to four years, create a video that was indistinguishable from actually seeing me talk, and you could put any words you want in my mouth and have it sound like I actually said them. It would be my intonation, my word choice, my word positioning, my metaphors, but but it'll be whatever you decide to make me say. And the potential for that to massively disrupt democracy is significant. I mean, this sounds weird bad. This is weird bad. On the other hand, Imagine, and this is a fairly trivial example, but imagine um, you can, and this is, this is what Aram uh, uh, the, the Sabati, the, uh, the guy I interviewed was, was sharing with me, imagine is it, uh, if you could um, say, okay, I would like to see, a, you go to Netflix, you say, I would like to see a space Western that has 30% political intrigue and 10% humor. And the AI would generate this show. And while you're watching it, you would reach an inflection point in the script. And then it would give you five choices of where the, the plot could go. And you'd pick one of those five choices. And then, and so you'd have this interactive, immersive narrative experience.
0: That's back to weird, with, weird.
1: With the like original actors that, you know. But I mean, if this And, is you'd, all... say, and you'd be able to say, and I would like it to star, uh, you know, Johnny <laughs> Depp and Cher. And like it would create that. And yourself, and me. Yeah, yeah. You could put yourself
0: in the narrative. Okay, that, I mean that sounds interesting. It sounds like all all this AI is built on understanding huge data sets of human behavior. Um, that's not how humans behave. No one searches on Netflix for I want I want only thirty percent comedy in the next film I watch.
1: So is this no? Some- but they do that. They do that uh, passively by by your. M- aggregate selection of what you choose on netflix Mm. netflix's algorithm knows you want 30 percent comedy in the mix of those little tile cards it shows you when you show up and
0: does that does that start to pigeonhole us though do we do we therefore never get exposed to positive feedback
1: loops that put us into information bubbles and this is what happens on facebook and this is why there is polarization in the political electorate and so these things happen in financial markets as well. You have these information cascades that cause bubbles and crashes. You see it a lot. You see it a lot in, in now voting markets In in what happened with the uh, 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 Brexit referendum in 2016 and and the U S presidential election uh, where, you know, essentially the, the the, uh, internet research group in St. Petersburg stimulated troll farms that promoted information cascades. And so Um, the there's some researchers in the national bureau of economic research uh, academic researchers who studied the percentage of vote influence this is something else i talk about in in augmenting your career the percentage of vote influenced by the russian troll farms and without telling you everything that's in the book i can share with you that it was greater than the margin of the of the vote
0: that's scary to bring this back a little bit closer to to home with what we were talking about before with, with crypto assets. So yes. the predictability uh, capacity of AI, you know, where do you see that intersecting with crypto markets?
1: Well, it, it's tricky because what you have is a system of systems. And so, so I advise a number of regulators, and this is actually a significant hot topic amongst a number of governments because regulators are trying to promote financial stability and they're trying to promote innovation. And you know, they've usually a few other things that they're trying to uh, account for. And and so, um, you know, the, when today, when they look at, let's forget crypto for a second, just think securities more broadly. They look at high frequency trading algorithms. They'll go in, they'll audit a single hedge fund or, in, you know, institutional asset manager or bank. They'll look at the algo for, for that trade. Um, and I said to the one regulator, I said, well, but that's just one at a time. You've got thousands of these high-frequency bots fighting each other in the markets every day. It's, it's 90% of market volume. How do you study those systemic behaviors? And they said, we don't have the tools to. And that's kind of scary. Actually, it's a lot scary in my opinion. But um, uh, it's a significant issue. Uh, and, and so I think we see this occurring in the crypto markets, although there's still a lot of human intervention. So so it's important to understand you do have computerized trading entering crypto. It is like all of the other dimensions of crypto where it's assuming institutional character with custody and settlement and clearing and AML KYC and all the other things that, you know, uh, buying a share of Boots PLC has associated with it. Um, but on top of that, uh, you, you have, um, uh, you, you know, this... Um, significant human element. There are still individuals who who are able to intercede in pretty meaningful ways that influence the prices of crypto. Um, so 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 on the one hand, predictability is difficult unless you know who the people are and what how they think. Um, but on the other hand, I expect that that human intervention is going to attenuate over time as the markets get more institutional, and so they'll start to behave more like the equities markets. And, and there, you know, geez, if you, if you can predict pricing discontinuities, you can make a lot of money. Um, 80% of the time, you won't be one of the people making a lot of money, but 20% of the time, you could be Renaissance Technologies and, you know, make billions.
0: So is there just not enough data yet? Because crypto as a, as a market, as an institutional market, is just too young. I,
1: I mean, it's young and the liquidity is relatively modest compared to the the liquidity of, of, of the equity markets. But But on the other hand... Again, you cannot underestimate the human factor. Um, and so, so my, my, I don't give investment advice, but the, if I were to give someone guidance, I would think about crypto as an alternative asset, not as a mainstream asset. So I do think of it as an increasingly institutional asset. So venture capital and private equity are alternative assets. They're just, you know, they're 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 just mainstream, and so I'm I'm thinking crypto is moving in that direction. And I'd say you know three to five percent of your portfolio would follow rational portfolio allocations. Twenty percent would be a very heavy bet on crypto, and you better have some information asymmetry if that's going to be your portfolio composition. But five percent can make a lot of sense, and if you look at an institutional book of hundred billion or a trillion. That, that could be a significant amount of of assets going into crypto.
0: Yeah, I don't think we're too far away from from seeing that either. I think it was only a, a month ago or two months ago that you know Paul Tudor Jones went on CNBC and said, you know, up to two percent of my portfolio is now into Bitcoin or derivatives of Bitcoin.
1: Well again and, and just look at, at the performance year to date. You know, if you if you had hedged your portfolio with crypto against US and and, and UK equities, you would have a, a stabilized portfolio. You know, you wouldn't be getting the massive returns as if you had put all your money into it. But of course, if you put all your money into crypto at the wrong time, then you would have lost eighty percent of your portfolio value. So, I mean, it is a volatile asset still. Um, but as traders know, with volatility comes profit.
0: Yep. One of the things you talked about in your in your show and tell segment for us, uh, and for the sake of our listeners, if you haven't seen it, you can find it on our YouTube channel and also on our social feeds and, and on the website. Um, you talked about the the adoption rates for new technology, sort of over the last 100, 150 years, and that rate is accelerating dramatically. Um, can you expand on maybe some of the, the forces or reasons why that might be happening?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. So. If you think about why, and, and Malcolm Gladwell wrote very cogently about this in his book, The Tipping Point. So if you think about how do new technologies get adopted? Frequently, someone tries something. Someone who's an innovator tries something. They like it. And they tell five or 10 of their friends. And those five or 10 of their friends are trend spotters, early adopters. They, they have these crazy, wild innovator friends. And they're like, that, that person just tried that new thing. I'm going to try it too. And then the early adopters try it, and they like it, and and then they tell 10 of their friends, and that brings in the early majority. And then you get the late majority, and then you get the laggards. And so that follows sort of an S-shaped curve of growth. It's it's known as diffusion theory. And so time and again, new technologies get adopted through this sort of S-curve of diffusion theory of ideas spreading. Well, what's happened in the last 50 years? Communications networks have gotten cheap, have gotten pervasive, people have integrated devices into their lives, particularly since the 1990s. They've gotten wearables. So so your your smartphone, it's a wearable, right? You carry it with you, you have it in your pocket. Forget the Apple Watch, the, the iPhone or the Android phone. These are things you have on you all the time. It's usually the last thing you look at before you go to bed, the first thing you grab in the morning when you wake up. And so we can look at sleep cycles just by looking at email usage. And so that becomes a vehicle for dissemination of new ideas. And so now when we have some new technology come along like bitcoin or you know, blockchain suddenly people are able to tell each other about it through all these different network communication systems and so ideas spread like wildfire
0: i can sort of understand how for you know previous technologies like the the telephone which which had a very sort of you know simple method of engaging with it and then even up to the internet you know the uis were quite Advanced, I think, but blockchain technology and crypto is—it feels like it's still. I mean, it's very. I don't know if it's innovator or early adopter. It's a stage, a little but it's, opaque,
1: right? I mean, it's it's, it's kind of like you know, if you remember when Charles Schwab became big in the in the nineties. I'm dating myself now, but you know, it, it was. It, it, it's sort of a a a, a con- sophisticated consumer technology, right? And and you know, if you look at the growth of Bloomberg machines, if you want to look at a institutional technology. You know, they started um, in the early 80s, you know, when Mike left, I think it was Solly, uh, he left Solomon Brothers. And, and then he, he sort of added to it, added to it. And then it suddenly went through this rapid adoption curve uh, and, and suddenly became this like, mm, yeah, multi-billion dollar enterprise. Um, and so, um, you know, I think we're seeing, so on the one hand with crypto, I don't know that it has to be a consumer technology to be widely adopted, Right. So if you think about the Bloomberg machine that runs through every trading house on the planet. And so similarly, you know, blockchain as a tradable asset could be in every trading house on the planet without really impacting, directly impacting consumer lives. Now, I happen to think that there are a lot of interesting applications of blockchain that that will impact consumer lives really under the hood. When someone uses an, an Apple, like an iPhone, they don't think about the AMD processor but they're using that AMD technology. And so again, blockchain may be that, that sort of, you know, dragon processor inside that's driving something else. Like suddenly I get my tax refund instantly.
0: You finished your show and Tell segment um, by comparing some of the areas that are essential for the adoption of crypto, at least, well, especially on the institutional side with, you know, the traditional financial systems that have evolved over the last couple hundred years. So you got, you know, the AML and the KYC elements, the custody settlement and clearing derivatives and hedging analytics and research, and then the clear regulatory guidance. So where, I mean, where do we stand with each of those institutional cryptos only two years old? Yeah. But it feels like it's well, moved yes and very no. I quickly.
1: Mean, I'll, I'll push back on the idea that institutional cryptos is, is two years old because there are always antecedents. So in the summer of 2014, uh, Sandy Pentland at MIT and I and a guy named John Clippinger hosted a conference on digital assets. And out of that conference came the Windhover principles, which were the first widespread adoption and acceptance of AMLKYC principles in the crypto industry. And and through that action of self-regulatory behavior, we avoided intercession by the major regulators to shut down Bitcoin. Because they were like ready to close it down. They were concerned it was just some like money laundering, too drugs, bad a reputation, sex trafficking, yeah. all the horrible things you could possibly think of. But we were able to make a compelling argument about A, there are a lot of other interesting applications to this technology, and B, everyone's going to agree to comply with regulations around AML KYC. And and so you know, it, That doesn't mean everyone actually did, but a lot of people at least tried to, and then it's becoming now more and more and more common. And that's like a foundational element for... Now, ironically, even today, one of the more notable purveyors of AMLKYC technology is actually run by a con man who is a shady individual. Uh, and, and I'm obviously not going to name names. But, you know, you, 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 caveat emptor, make sure you're working with a reputable vendor. But there are a lot of reputable vendors. You just have to make sure you're working with one. And, and similarly for things like custody, um, you know, custody is a bedrock foundational tech, you know, technology, service, solution, whatever you want to call it, capacity that you need if you want to have institutional players engaging with digital assets. And custody is something I will agree with you is really more like it's come within the last couple of years where you actually see governments formally sanctioning custody solutions that then allow institutional players to really look at it as something that looks like what they're familiar with.
0: Yeah, and I guess maybe because crypto assets, digital assets are are so unique compared to um, traditional financial um, securities, bonds, whatever. In terms of like, I mean, it's it's a bearer bond, right? It's how do you store... A crypto asset it involves private key management Uh, so that's you know these are new technologies that require new business processes for institutions so I I assume that's why we're playing a little bit of catch-up in this space
1: I'm gonna argue that that um, crypto is not as new as it would like to think it is but it is different uh, because of kind of how the various pieces of tech stack are put together and therefore it needs you know it needs to, to either replicate or utilize some of those institutional architectures that we see with other kinds of securities. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm halfway into the the realm of saying that it's it's really a commodity, not as, you know, except where it isn't, right? And so I find really intriguing a lot of the, uh, uh, just from a, um, an innovation analysis standpoint. So again, this is not looking at it from an investment return standpoint, just looking at it from, the evolution of innovative technology, I find these um, asset-linked cryptos to be really interesting, uh, less so the stable coins. I mean, I think that's interesting in, in some levels, but I mean more like you know, fractionalizing real estate, taking, taking real estate, which is really more of an institutional product and suddenly democratizing it where someone could have you know, five pounds or $5 worth of their local coffee shop that they like, and they can actually own that. That's a really interesting idea.
0: Just going back to stablecoins, because you, you brought it up, and it's an interesting topic that even today, the Bank of England, um, you know, the, the Governor Andrew Bailey was speaking about how closely they observe and evaluate stable coins and the, the potential development of a, a central bank-backed digital currency. Yes. Is it, I mean, you must be following this very closely as Very well. closely, yeah. Where, where do you see it moving, you know, is it two years until we see uh, a central bank release a digital currency? Is it… Less well, early. Barbados would argue with you that they <laughs> yeah. already have yeah. gone down that road, and Bahamas
1: is very close behind, and ECCB, and you know, the Caribbean states are pretty far down, or Cambodia, or any, you know, there are a lot of interesting projects going on. So, so some important things have happened within the last 12 to 14 months. So Libra was announced and experienced significant backlash, with the French finance minister saying at the OECD conference, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll paraphrase by saying hell will freeze over before we see Libra on European soil. And, and on the other hand, um, and, and so there's a risk with Libra, just to speak on that for a minute, that it'll end up being the poor country's currency. So just as Mark Zuckerberg tried to create the poor man's Internet a few years ago. There's a risk that you're going to have the poor man's cryptocurrency through Libra, that the the less developed nations will end up using it de facto because Facebook can pump it through 2.4 billion users. Okay, so that's sort of one bucket. And and, and the design of Libra wasn't even original. It was copied off of an MIT paper two years prior. It's just, you know, like mind-blowing stuff like that. But okay, I say copied. I'm speaking very strongly There are highly suggestive similarities between the white paper for Libra and a white paper that was published two years prior. Okay, one could argue it's only the only intelligent way of putting things together, and so that just, it was de novo, pulled along intelligent lines. Fine. On the other hand, around the same time, China announced the digital RMB. And now suddenly everyone woke up and said, oh boy, we either hand over our sovereignty to Mark Zuckerberg or we hand it over to the PBOC. And there are a lot of governments who feel that they don't want to replace U.S. dollar hegemony with, with r and hegemony or with Zuck hegemony. And this made tons of governments, including the U.K. government, much more focused on the question of what should we do around central bank digital currencies? Let's take that white paper that we wrote a year ago and actually now start putting a task force around it and begin experimenting with it and I expect to see within the next one to three years, more and more governments announcing some form of CBDCs. Um, you know, there are people who would argue, oh, Bitcoin is a global currency, and that's the, the currency that's not Zuck or the PBOC. But, but the reality is uh, um, most governments are not going to hand the keys to the kingdom over to uh, an anonymous group of, of Bitcoin miners, which are, you know, mostly located in China and Russia. And so, you know, you're going to see more CBDCs and Bank of England is a question of when, not
0: if. But is is it significant? Um, Is a CBDC a a step change for everyone or is it just maybe a more efficient, you know, time and cost wise way to transfer money for commercial banks and governments or?
1: Well, that's the ripple argument. And I actually think ripple's onto something quite interesting so much so that Swift has a big, blockchain initiative, because Ripple has said, hey, there's $10 trillion of trapped liquidity and institutional money flows, and, and we're going to unlock it. But it depends is the best answer to your question. Because, honestly, there are a lot, the UK government disperses to 20 million people benefits and, and public assistance. And, and today, there are a lot of inefficiencies in that payment system. And and a lot of concerns about fraud and waste and cost and time and and predatory lending that has entered the market. And so if you could roll that out across a UK central bank digital currency, you could potentially dramatically improve the lives of 20 million people in the UK. And and we see similar structures in other governments. And and so so there's an interesting dimension that blockchain can bring in terms of transparency, accountability. So let's look at sub-Saharan Africa, for example. People would like to... So tax avoidance in sub-Saharan Africa is more than $50 billion a year, and, and it's a huge burden on the governments. And, and when you ask people, as there's a lot of research has been done as to why, it's not due to a, a desire by African citizens to destroy their own governments. They would like the benefits of schooling and medicine and police protection, the other things that governments can bring together, collective action can bring. They're concerned about corruption. They're concerned if they pay their taxes, it'll go in someone's pocket instead of going to pave the pothole in the middle of the road. And so if you brought in the transparency and reportability and accountability that blockchain can introduce and you ran that through, let's say, a central bank digital currency that can manage your taxes and manage your government assistance and manage government disbursements, people might have more trust in the system.
0: I think that's a very, very positive positive. Outlook, and I, I'd, I'd almost like to end on a very positive note like that. So thank you very much. Um, we've got a couple of questions that we ask everybody. Uh, Please, if you don't ahead. mind, we run through them. Yeah. Um, David, where do you see the crypto industry? Let's, let's focus on institutional crypto. Where do you see that in one year versus 10 years?
1: In one year, I think we will look somewhat similar to today with maybe a little more volume. So you'll see people experimenting with it, teasing it, Starting to try to find ways to offer it to their retail clients or their institutional clients, and and so we're still going to be in this sort of test and learn phase. Ten years from now, I see it as being a pervasive asset. It's going to be probably look something along the lines of, of private equity or venture capital or REITs or something where you know it's not going to be eighty percent of your portfolio, but it could be three to five percent of your
0: portfolio. Okay, if you could change one thing about this industry right now, what would it be? get rid of the shady characters. That is a very common theme. We, we, we just need to find a solution for that next. Um, well, but this is where blockchain actually could come in.
1: If we had better integrity reporting, the fact that you've got a guy who defrauded investors and, and, and a, a scammy guy running around running like a compliance company would be something that would be brought to light in a trusted and verified fashion. Blockchain could solve
0: blockchain's own problems. Will solve. Um, what is one piece of technology you couldn't live without? My phone. Fair enough. What does a weekend look like for you? What do you do when you're not teaching or, or speaking, writing? Well, So,
1: so most of the, during the week, most of my time is being consumed by running companies or helping people build growth in their businesses. So the weekend is when I get to write and think.
0: Is there a movie that you could watch over and over again and never get tired of?
1: Oh, I have a list, but Inception Ooh. is on the list for sure. Okay. How long is the list? Is it? I'd say there's probably five to 10 core movies, and then there's like a broader occasional visit. Do you have any
0: catchphrases that you live by?
1: Cash is king. (laughs)
0: Okay. Um, Who should we all follow on Twitter? Me. Shameless self plug. What's the what's the Twitter handle? What are we doing? David Schreier. David Schreier. Anyone else who do you follow that
1: you actually? Uh, you I live take that out? back because honestly, I do most of my posting on LinkedIn. So okay. I'll, I'll throw a bone and say you should follow Melton Demirer's on Twitter. Okay. Meltem.
0: We should get her on the podcast then as well, I guess. Absolutely, she's great. Uh, what was the last thing that surprised you? I would say there were two things that surprised me.
1: One was dumb luck, and the other I'm still navigating. <laughs> okay. The dumb luck was I started a digital learning company about 18 months ago with a business partner, Beth Porter, who was the chief product officer of edX. And we thought this was going to be like our side pocket, you know, lifestyle business that we'd run and we would do a few classes and then COVID hit. And suddenly we're sitting on top of a hot company. So raising 300% more money than I expected. That surprised
0: me. It's a nice surprise.
1: The other was how much my publisher did not like my proposed book cover for augmenting your career, how to win at work in the age of AI. So what you will see on the store shelves is going to be different than what I thought was the world's most amazing cover.
0: But Should we be sending him a copy of this podcast? I have been wrong before. (laughs) Okay. David, it's been very good talking to you. Thank you very much for coming in.
1: Thanks, Dad. Ta- this has been fun. I really have enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to see what Copper is working on.
0: We'll, we'll do this again very soon. Outstanding. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen David's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on our website at copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, please make sure to give us a good review on whichever streaming platform you're using, and of course, subscribe. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly at tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a show. We're always here to talk all things crypto. This show is made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown, with support from Mailey Mountford and Eva Leela. New episodes will be coming out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe.